Hi, my name is Wyatt Troy, and I want to welcome you to Behind the Daw, the podcast that was created to help you become the artist that you've always wanted to be. We interview artists and music industry experts on an emotional, philosophical, and artistic level to get inside their heads, gather the best information, and then bring it back to you. By the way, this is a companion podcast to our new YouTube series, In the Daw, where we invite artists to dissect their songs in real time. If you have any artists you would like to see come on the show, or if you have any feedback in general, you can contact me at Wyatt at musicandstuffllc.com. For episode 20, we have Evoke, and this was a crazy, amazing episode. I'm not going to say too much about it because I want you to go and find your own little nuggets of wisdom, but I do have to say that my favorite part of this entire podcast was when we were talking about why Evoke got into therapy, how it's benefiting his life, and why he's continuing to go to therapy. I just want to give a huge thanks to Evoke and a huge thanks to you for even coming through. And as always, if you enjoy what you learn and you'd love to learn more, go ahead and subscribe and we'll see you back here next week. And if you feel so inclined, please leave a rate and review on iTunes. But for now, without further ado, here's Evoke. I just want to welcome everyone to episode 20 of Behind the Daw. Today we have Evoke, and I can't even begin to explain how stoked I am for this. Alden, how you doing, man? I'm so good. How are you doing? It's been a day, but I am excited for this. I've been looking forward to this for weeks now. Just so stoked. So for those who don't know you, or even for those who do know you, but they want a little bit more intimate information about you, let's get a little bit of background information, man. Who are you? I'm Alden, professionally known as Evoke, and I have been operating under that moniker since... 2013, I think. I've been producing for even longer than that. I've been producing since I was 14. I'm 23 now. And I've had more than 10 different names throughout. Most of them are terrible. I had an alias that was just alias for a while. And I had one psilocybin like the mushroom, but just spelled wrong. There's some juicy ones in there. But point being, now I don't have as dumb of a name. I'm Evoke now. My most sort of recent inspirations, I kind of started with the Evoke project more in like the UK-based neuro scene, and then have recently been really incorporating my own singing and vocals and, and, and sort of collaborating with other vocalists like Laura Brem or sort of featuring more on other tracks. I've kind of diversified what I'm trying to do a little bit. And sort of my main goal right now is just to make music that is as punchy dynamically as it is sort of emotionally. Trying to make stuff that cuts through mix-wise and is like super clean and juicy and fun, but also lyrically you dive into it and it's just as sort of hard-hitting. And then performance-wise in terms of my vocals, it's just as hard-hitting. I'm trying to get all of those elements sort of layered up to such a quality that every, like I basically want it to be indestructible in a way to where you could come at it from any angle and whether you're a music theory major or a professional vocalist or a producer, you wouldn't be able to find any flaws with it. With what you just said, with you having the some really bad aliases and the whole like you had an alias name alias that the smart Alec in me is just, you know, like giddy about something like that. But as far as the alias that you have now, evoke. Where did that come from? Why did you choose it? I'm surprised by how many people don't know. That is a word. The word evoke is sort of like to to conjure or bring to mind an idea or feeling or experience. Basically, I see that as my job is to conjure ideas, feelings, and experiences in the people who listen to my music through any avenue possible. As my sound has progressed since then, I've found different and more unique and more exciting ways to do that. But. I think for me, it was important eventually to find an alias that 
would allow me to do whatever it was I wanted to do. Before I was Evoke, the last moniker I had was Euphoriac. So someone who's like addicted to euphoria. And that is, I still think it's fairly clever on some level. Also, it's very limiting. You know, I was making trance music and that was an appropriate name for that, but it was uh, very limiting. It came to a point where it was just like, this is not an alias that is conducive to my expanding my sound. So you said something when, before we got into your, your moniker, that you wanted to create this music that basically if you came at it from any angle they'd, they'd be impressed with that but the the term that you use is that they wouldn't be able to find any flaws in it so and and why so why do you have a desire for someone not to find flaws in your music it's likely a form of projection because that's very much especially less so now, but I've always had a problem with music where I will just find things that just bother me. Like, oh, this song is produced so well and it's mixed so great, but the lyrics are horrible. The lyrics to the song are so good and it's sung really well, but the production is just so bad. There's always this one component that for me, I find it breaks the immersion. I want the song to let me into kind of a world wherein I can't find those sort of major glaring flaws. Mm. And I know a lot of people don't listen to music that way. I assume most people don't or else pop charts wouldn't look like they do. I mean, that's not really hate so much as it is like an acknowledgement of like my personal taste. And so for me, when it comes down to something, it's like I would hate to make a song that is produced really well and where my singing is really good, but the lyrics are just the most contrived, lame garbage that anyone could ever come up with. I would hate for that to be what drives any listener away from me. With you not wanting people to find flaws in your music, it's more so just for the pure expression of the music, you doing justice to the music. It's not some kind of fear. It's like, oh, I don't want people to see me as flawed. It's more so just like, no, I want my, I want to do my music justice. Is that really what it is? Yeah, I would say that's fair. It's more about the vision because I think that especially now, anything that I've got out, I can look back on it and be like, oh, the mix on that is really bad comparatively speaking, or, you know, I wasn't a very good singer relative to how good I am at singing now. And I assume that, you know, like I said, if you are the jazz major or you are the music teacher, you can listen to the songs that I'm working on right now and have the same sort of input. I guess I'm not under any delusions that I'm doing exactly what I'm trying to do. It's more that I'm trying to always improve every single one of those aspects, sort of strive to remove any flaw that any person could find and to have the highest standard of quality for myself in every possible domain. What you're describing to me right now, and I'm very into business and a lot of businesses, very, you know, very uh, iconic businesses, they go through what you're talking about right now where like they see a business or they see a product and they're like, wow, this aspect and this aspect is great. But this one aspect, like it keeps me up at night. I hate this. So the way they remedy that is they go and create their own product. And so I kind of feel like that's the mindset in which you're in. You know, you listen to some songs and you're like, that was amazing, but they sucked at this part. What if I just went and did it myself? Is that is that kind of the mindset that you're, that you're telling me you're in? Definitely. And, and sort of, I think that that is actually what you just said is more or less the core of my process because most of what I listen to sounds absolutely nothing like what I make. I listen to a lot of Japanese instrumental music. Uh, one, my favorite band is uh, The Fall of Troy. I don't know if you're familiar. No, I'm not. <laughs> it's like a math punk, really, like really intense, deeply contrived time signatures that switch constantly. They're my favorite band, but ostensibly I, I come to their music and I think like, wow, this guitar progression is so cool and this beat work is so interesting, but the lyrics are really bad in a lot of cases. And so there's a part of my brain that I can turn off for that. And at the same time, there's that creative part of me that hears that and is like, it is theoretically possible 
to make a song that is that good and does not have that problem. It is theoretically possible for me to become the person who is capable of doing that. It just requires time invested on my part. So that's really where I'm at is I'm really just trying to invest enough time and enough you know, dedicated practice and make enough songs that I can get to something approximating my goals. What has been in your in your personal experience of your music career? What has been the hardest experience that you've had? Sort of when I first started getting any degree of notoriety, I was still very much and am still very much finding my sound. What does evoke sound like? And and I've definitely gotten feedback from people before where they're like, you have such a distinct sound, like everything you make sounds so sort of consistent. And at the same time, I don't feel like I have any idea what that is. Three years ago, I think is probably what I'm thinking of. But when I started singing, I wasn't very good. I don't think I realized how not very good I was at the time, but I think that there was a part of me that knew. And it's no secret that people on YouTube are not going to care about my feelings. They're just giving feedback on the song. And so I got a lot of comments that were like, your voice sucks. You're a really bad singer. You should stick to producing stuff like that, where, you know, that kind of thing is, is really disheartening because people, they won't just say the vocals in this don't sound good. They'll say, you are a bad singer. You have a bad voice. You are bad at this and you're stupid for trying. There's a lot of that. Sort of most disappointing about that was it wasn't just strangers on YouTube. There was like this whole community that I kind of ran with that carried that baton too. There was like people that I used to collaborate with and with whom I used to, I would say, be friends that would talk trash about me behind my back. Really? Yeah. And, and say like, oh, Evoke always sings in his stuff now. And he's so bad at it. And his music used to be so good. And he's so bad now. And I just got excommunicated from this whole collaborative group that I was a part of because I was doing this other thing. And it was both a major like personal setback as well as in a way it actually was a sort of career setback as well because all these sort of opportunities that I once had, I no longer had because these people would just stop talking to me altogether. It was very strange and very disheartening. And, and as sort of in the heels of that, as well as this, this sort of management arrangement that I had at the time that didn't end up working out, it was just like, there was this period of time where I was like, do I even want to do this at all? where it was like, okay, well, maybe it's time to go the college route. Maybe it's time to pack my bags and just pat myself on the back for the releases that I have had and then get a career in X, Y, or Z. And sort of the conclusion I came to after trying all this other stuff, because I tried a lot of other stuff. I tried focusing more on kind of the day job that I have. I tried boxing. I tried, you know, everything under the sun that one could think of. And it eventually just came down to... I just need to be doing music. It's just non-optional for me. It's not a choice. It's just what I'm here to do. And anybody who really knows me would tell you the same. It, it's stupid for me to be doing anything else. It's a waste of the world's time and resources for me to be doing anything else. Let me get this straight. So you had friends. For those who can't see, I'm doing air quotes right now because that doesn't sound like friends. Friends, quote unquote, who once you tried to follow your, you know, a certain part of your passion, you know, you, you, you felt something you're like, you know, what, I want creatively, artistically, I want to go down that route. They not only criticized you for it, but there was no constructive criticism whatsoever. And they kind of excommunicated you from this group of friends. Is, is that correct? I mean, I don't mean to paint the situation as black and white as that, because I think that there's definitely a role that I had in this as well. Like there's, I think that there was an extent to which I wasn't trying to go for the same sound. And so I didn't necessarily reach out to the same people. And at the same time, there was definitely a subset of these collaborators. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call them friends, especially more in hindsight, because they were very nice to me 
insofar as we were working on stuff together. There's been a couple different, you know, spinoffs of that where one person, they, they became very successful. I had a collaborator with whom uh, they, they had a career that launched. And I obviously I won't name names because I'm not trying to start any drama. And, and, and they were very nice to me up until our collaboration came out. Um, and then after it was out and after they kind of took off running with the sort of whatever it was that it got them, suddenly I would hit them up and be like, Hey, how are you doing? Not even trying to, you know, I wasn't even trying to take advantage or leverage a connection because I try not to operate that way. I mean, I'm not perfect. Nobody is, but on principle, I don't want to take advantage of anybody and, and said individual suddenly became very harshly critical of my work and was saying, Oh, you need to just make club tunes. You need to des- design your stuff for a club or else you're never going to get anywhere. And like the singing thing is not working out for you. You have, you have a bad voice. And then that, you know, that's one instance. And then to answer your question, I'm not a hundred percent sure exactly how it went down. I will say there were definitely people that excommunicated me and would talk about me behind my back. And it was people who I would have told you were my friends before that. The entire experience that you had with exploring this new artistic part of yourself with singing, something that you wanted to do, something that you felt strongly about, and what seemed like the majority of people or, or people that you that you would consider friends or, or even just people on YouTube bashing you for it. How did you overcome that? Because in my opinion, I think you're an amazing singer and I listen to music all day, so that should be pretty credible. <laughs> I had about a year where I wasn't doing anything. Like I wasn't making music at all. And I would maybe step into the studio every now and again and just make a beat and be like, oh, cool. I still can do this. That's more or less what my cover of I Ran So Far Away was, was like I hadn't made anything for better part of half a year and just stepped into the studio and just all that built up in me and just there was a song. And then I just was like, all right, well, I'll release this. A lot of it has come down to understanding that not everybody is going to be my audience not every person is going to have the same intentions as me as a listener or as a creator, certainly. And so all feedback that I receive has to be nested in that understanding of like, would this person like what I was doing if I executed it perfectly? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, then their feedback probably isn't that useful. You know, maybe they can give me feedback on little things and maybe they're like, well, your kick seems a little loud. And it's like, well, okay, that's, maybe useful. Maybe that's something I would have caught anyway. But if they're like, I don't like this stylistically on whole, you know, that's useless to me. In what universe is that useful feedback? And I think people, I honestly think people could be better about just not giving that kind of feedback or more understanding. Like if you're going to say, this isn't my thing, just say that up front. Because I've had people give me unsolicited, harsh feedback that was sort of predicated on them not understanding what I was trying to do in the first place. You're opening up a whole floodgate inside my mind right now, because obviously what you're talking about, I've experienced as well, especially with doing the podcast, with doing the the In the Doll with, with Multiplier and everything. Every week there is multiple people who come and they just trash the crap out of us. At first it was like, oh man, that sucks. There's this person that's not, that's not, vi-. But, but then after a while, I'm like, I kind of got into the same mindset as you. It's like, it's not really useful advice for anyone at all. Oh, these videos suck. Okay, well that that gives me no reference to fix. That gives me nothing to work on. And also, you know, like what does it do for them? There's no benefit for them besides just having this teenage boy angst that they want to get out. You know what I mean? It's just useless. I think it's also important to remember that like the anonymity of internet comments does mask the fact that sometimes literally you are being trolled by a 12-year-old. That is sometimes what is happening. So I think that it's important to consider that angle as well as just that people who don't accomplish anything have a lot of time to type comments, you know? (laughs) 
that's what their accomplishment is, is, is being a sort of armchair critic of internet content. And whether that's because they're 12 and have a lot of free time and are skipping their homework, or it's because they're 38 and work a job that they don't like, or any number of other reasons, or maybe they are a legitimately very well-versed video editor and are having a really bad day and saw your video and were like, oh, it's another one of these, you know, and, and judged you offhand and, you know, wrote you off in the first five seconds. You never know with people. And I think that for me, I guess what's mostly changed in sort of recommitting to it and, and taking the feedback better is that I know for every piece of feedback, there's a, a, a context like that, like what I just said, where it's like, it's not that I am a bad musician for not reaching that person. It's probably got a lot more to do, frankly, with whether or not they've just eaten a meal than that. If they haven't had food at all in that day, they're probably a lot less likely to like my music than if they'd eaten lunch, you know? And that's going to affect their perspective of me much more than any degree of quality of my music. If you were able to take all those people, every, every harsh comment that you've ever had, and you were able to basically remove the negative experience experiences that they were having at that current day. Maybe they broke up with their girlfriend. Maybe, you know, maybe they got an eviction notice. Maybe, you know, maybe they were diagnosed with some disease so on and so forth. If you were able to remove all of that, what percentage of those people actually would have liked your music? My guess is that would be pretty high. You know, you remove all that crap and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, this is, this is actually really good. Right. And I know this isn't necessarily the point of this conversation, but I think the other issue I have is that it, there's not an obvious framework for people to approach my music. A lot of the time, people don't don't necessarily know what to expect. It's something that I'm having a, a hard time with in terms of branding is, okay, well, what even is my music? How do I present this to people so that they're not confused by the time I start singing or by the nature of the beat work? And, and there's not an easy answer to it. And so... I think approach is also important. It scales up, you know, it scales from the bottom all the way up where it's like, okay, well, how do I bring in the vocals? Is it shocking how they come in? Are they really loud? You know, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe I hit that first note and it's like, well, I didn't prepare the listener for the fact that there would be vocals. So now they're already confused that there's vocals and they have to really focus on them now because it startled them, you know, to where it's stuff like that, where those small things, I think, so drastically affect someone's ability to let them even listen to the thing and decide if they would even like it. And I know that for me, you know, a couple of years ago, if there were vocals on the track, I didn't want to listen to it. And it didn't matter whether the lyrics were good or whether the singing was good or whether the songwriting was good or whether the vocals were mixed well. It was just, I heard vocals and I was like, nope, I'm out. And what I, what I learned about myself was that that was because of these other flaws that I was noticing. What I consider flaws. I mean, they're flaws as it pertains to my perspective. Songwriting that I find to be cheesy or melody work that I find to be cheesy. You could find a hundred other people that would completely disagree with me. In my business endeavors, I've actually been able to come across some information that has really helped me with this situation that you're talking about with maybe some people don't understand my music or, you know, if I don't make this certain type of music, we'll get it out to, to enough people or these people who don't really like my music, oh, maybe I should go back to the drawing board and, and change it. Really, to be honest, you know, if we were, you know, if it was like the 1800s or the 1700s, we would have a problem. We would have a big problem because the people that was your fan base was however far you could walk or ride a horse, basically, unless you get on a train, if you were lucky. So that was our problem. But now in this day and age, 
where 50% of the planet is on the internet and that's just gonna keep increasing every year. The doors are, are wide open. And so just to really quick give you an example, I'm sure you're familiar with Crywolf, with Justin Phillips, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I first heard Justin Phillips in like, uh, like 2013 or 2014, when I first heard his music, it resonated with my soul so much. Like it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And then any anyone I showed that to, any of his music that I showed to anyone, they hated it. And it freaking blew my mind. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, this is a part of my soul. Like, I like, how could you hate this? And so, you know, like forever, this is like blew me away. Like I, I look at his statistics, his YouTube views, everything like that. And he was doing extremely well. I was like, how is it that everyone, everyone around me hates him? You know, I, I shouldn't say hate him, but doesn't like his music like I do. The concept that I'm trying to get at is this, is that with the day and age that we live in and the, the potential reach that every single one of us who has a smartphone or a laptop or just any sort of connection to the internet has is insane. And I promise you, it does not matter what kind of music you have. It doesn't matter. There is an audience for you. I promise you. There, I could show you some products and some musicians and some movies that you would look at and throw up in your mouth but there is a huge, gigantic cult following with them. I know a lot of people struggle with what you're talking about, but I promise you, Alden, no matter what you decide your sound is, which right now I love your sound, but if it evolves into something else, that's totally fine. Whatever you decide your sound is, or your branding, or whatever, I promise you, I swear to you, money back guaranteed, that, <laughs> <laughs> that there is a huge audience out there for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, 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 and I do believe that also. I think that I don't consider it naive to consider myself a career musician. And that's speaking as someone who holds a day job and works 40 hours a week doing something not music related. I don't think it's naive for me to expect that in the long run, it would end up being a career for me. I think for me, it's... It's very good to hear you say that. And thank you for saying that. Uh, every time I hear any opinion like that from anyone who works in the industry or even anyone who's just an avid music listener, it's like that is one of the things that keeps me going. I think that it, it will in the long run end up being a, a net benefit to me that my sound is, is, is hard to fit into any of the currently existing categories. I think right now that is a, a disadvantage. It means I can't submit to most playlists or YouTube channels or anything like that because there's not, you know, they can't put it into their dubstep slot. They can't put it into their house slot. They can't put it into their chill hop slot. There's not a defined through line for me to kind of make my music accessible through. And I think right now that's a disadvantage. I think ultimately it will end up being an advantage because I think people who, who find my music and really like it and want more of it, I'm going to be the only place they can get it. You know, my, I, I am the only person who provides what I provide sonically. And so there is no other option if that's what you want. And I have musicians that I feel that way about like Aesop Rock. He is this New York rapper who is like one of the most verbose. He has like the highest vocabulary. He has like 3000 more words vocabulary than Shakespeare. And like, and it's just like one of the craziest, most unique artists that most people I show him to, again, like you said, they just won't like it or they'll, they'll criticize something and be like, he pronounces words weird, you know, yeah. which is true. And at the same time, it's like, if I want to listen to Aesop rock, there is absolutely nothing else that will get me there. I think that what I've kind of come to the conclusion of regarding sort of my music is that that's more the kind of artist that I am. I don't necessarily make tracks to fit playlists or labels or anything like that. 
I think I'm more a, if you want this, this is the only place you can get it sort of musician. I have a very hard time with all purpose musicians. Have you ever got Thai food at a burger joint? It's disgusting. You know what I mean? Like what? This makes no sense. You ever got a burger at a Thai joint? This sucks. You know, like it just doesn't make sense. You're my Thai food, man. When I want Thai food, I I, I go to a vote. I think you need to own that, dude. I, I, I think that's awesome what you're doing. So with that being said, you know, when, when we were trying to figure out when we could do this podcast, you mentioned that you that you were going to therapy and I first off just to the viewers the listeners that I, I just want to say that is amazing and I love that you are so open about it in fact I feel like more people need to be more open about it you know are you are you embarrassed to say that you're going to the doctor because you have a cold no everyone says that and I kind of feel like if you need some help mentally or emotionally and you want to go to a therapist or, or a psychiatrist or anything like that there should be no cultural judgments or hesitation with that to be like oh what do they think of me so how is that going how are you feeling about that it's one of the best decisions i've made it's certainly the best decision i've made in the past two years is to start going because it's translated to me being able to live my life more intentionally what am i spending my time doing you know like the fact that i have a calendar and that when you ask me when can we do this session i open up my calendar and I say, well, I can't do tomorrow at two because I have therapy. The fact that I have that calendar is because of therapy, you know, because I was like, well, I want to get more music done. I don't know how to allocate my time. And my therapist is, has, you know, these are people that have experience with these kinds of things and can give you, if nothing else, an unbiased opinion on like, you know, here's a good way that you might consider doing that. Yeah. And I think that, I think that people are very susceptible to repeating the same patterns over and over and again, unless it's sort of brought to their attention. And I think that even if it is brought to someone's attention, there is um, a sort of defensive natural reaction to protect even things about oneself that one doesn't like, because we think of that as being part of our identity. So I think that for me in the past, and for a lot of people I know, it's easy for something like depression or anxiety or social anxiety to become part of one's identity, where you not only experience that, but you experience it to such a degree, and it motivates so much of what you do that you think, well, if I didn't have this, who would I even be? And I think that that's a problem that a lot of people run into when they're actually in therapy. And I think that's even for the few people that actually get there. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a there's an unnecessary stigma surrounding it. Whereas what you were saying with a cold, like people will have a stuffy nose and go to the doctor. That's personally not how I live. If I live, I, I give it a couple days and see if I get better. But people will go to the doctor for a stuffy nose, but they have, they're so sad and so demotivated that they can't accomplish any of the things they want to do or get off the couch and they won't go see a therapist. And it's like the degrees of intensity there are so different. You know, like if you had a disease, like a physical disease that made it so you couldn't get off the couch, you wouldn't say, oh, it's fine. I'll get over it. You would, you would go and see if there was anything you could do. And I think a lot of people in the mental health realm have resigned themselves to this is just how I am. You know, and I think that frankly, there's a degree of um, diagnostic mental health that contributes to that because I think that there's an extent to which someone can be told, okay, you have by bipolar. You, well, they don't even say you have bipolar. They say you are bipolar. And, and, and sort of the implication there is like, this is how you have always handled and will always handle this emotional stress. And the only solution for you is to take this medication that dulls that experience for you. And I don't necessarily, I'm obviously, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. I don't, I would not consider any of my opinion on this to be medically valid. And at the same time, I think that as a person experiencing those sorts of things, 
anytime there has been a you have depression diagnosis or you have anxiety diagnosis, there is a part of me that is like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm valid in just struggling with this. And I think that it's important to also understand and there's something you can do about it. There are things that you can do that I, I think a lot of people have this intuition where it's like, yeah, if you get your diet a little bit more stable, you'll do better. If you work out like once a week, even you'll do better. You know, there are these things that are common knowledge in the sense that seems so obvious as to be cheesy. You know, it almost sounds like cliche advice, like, oh, you take a deep breath. It's like, that's really good advice. That's really useful advice. Like if you're actually in the midst of one of the most anxious moments of your life and you take a deep breath, that's going to make a huge difference in your experience. But people don't do it for any number of reasons. And I remember for me, it was like, oh, that's so cheesy. You know, it was like this, this is so cliche. It's such like a patronizing approach to it. I was like, oh, my problem is so insignificant to you that you think I can just breathe it away. And it's easy to get caught up in that kind of thinking because you think of, oh, if I'm this sad about something, it has to be legitimate. And it's not always. Sometimes we are really, really sad and want to hurt ourselves because we didn't eat enough. Sometimes we're really sad and want to hurt ourselves because we slept three hours last night. And it, it, and it doesn't matter that like X number of months ago, your girlfriend broke up with you. That's not really why you're sad. You're sad because you didn't eat or sleep enough, you know, and really trying to form the actual through line of like, what did I do to why do I feel like this is so important because otherwise you just make up the beginning and the end of that and are floundering about in nowhere trying to solve problems that aren't even relevant to why you're feeling the way you feel. Two things that you said that I couldn't agree more, you know, a lot of times when when you hear people struggling with something, you, they say stuff to the to, to the effect that you are bipolar. They don't say you're struggling with bipolar. They say you are bipolar. And to me, I have a little bit of a hard time with that because then, you know, the people who are already in a mentally unstable situation, all of a sudden they start attaching that to their identity, like you were saying, and it, it could be really, really harmful because, you know, if when have you ever broken a bone and you went to the doctor and he's like, you are a broken leg. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Oh, I have a broken leg. Oh, I, I, oh I'm struggling with depression, but that's not me. That's that's just the thing in the box that I carry around. You know what I mean? I got, I got to figure out how to fix that or I got to figure out how to live with that. And then the other thing that you said is that I don't understand this because I've, I've struggled with it too. Everyone I've ever known has struggled with this where it's there is basic human needs and we don't feel those human needs and then we wonder why we're sad you know how you were saying like people who get three hours of sleep all of a sudden they're depressed and they don't know why haven't eaten enough or haven't had the right type of food or you know like maybe they've secluded themselves from humanity for three months but they're really extroverts and we think we're above that we think that there's no way that something as simple as breathing is is the cause for what's going on or could could help out there's no way that something as simple as getting a full night's sleep or having a healthy diet or spending time with the people that i love Love could possibly fulfill my needs you know there's no way that that's the reason why everything's going on which is absurd you know what i mean you you point out one person who has a healthy diet who's getting exercise who's getting plenty of sleep that you know is emotionally getting the love that they need from people around them and tell me that they're not at least on the road to being okay it's less about anything that you do in one particular moment i think and more about the patterns that one develops throughout life. You know, I think that I've heard it said, and I forget who says it, which is a shame because I really would like to give credit where credit is due. But we think that the parts of our lives that are important 
are the parts where we're deciding what to do. You know, where you just got home and you're like, oh, I have like a couple hours. What am I going to do? You know, and what's a lot more important is the stuff you do unconsciously. You know, there, there are studies that say stuff as like provocative. And I don't know, again, I can't cite this, but as provocative as, well, how long your commute to work is has more effect on your life satisfaction than $50,000 worth of income. What? Which is like, so if you, if you can bike to work or if you can walk to work, even better, that affects your life more at, compared to an hour drive to work than a lot of money. And it's those little routines. And we don't think about the commute to work. We don't think about how annoying it is that every day, you know, we're in bumper to bumper traffic and someone cuts us off. Or we don't think about like how every day we wake up and we don't give ourselves time to have breakfast. And every day when we go to sleep, instead of knowing what time we're going to go to sleep each night, we just get in bed at around 11 with our computer and wait until we absolutely can't stay awake anymore. You know, and then we wonder like, okay, why don't I feel a sense of purpose? And it's like, well, you haven't designed your life with a sense of purpose. If one designs one's life with a sense of purpose, it, it suddenly becomes that way. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to set your, you have to set up the dominoes in a way that when you knock them down, they actually all hit each other. Yeah. You can't throw dominoes on a table and expect anything to occur. You need to set yourself up for success. I think that that's, that degree of context is so important for people to understand about each other and themselves is that, have you, do you know of the fundamental attribution error? Have you heard of it? That sounds so interesting, but no. It's a, it's a much simpler concept than the name makes it sound. Basically, the idea is that if, if a stranger does something bad to us, we assume that that is how they are. You know, that that is, that is what that person is like. Whereas if we do something bad, we're much more likely to say, oh, I was having a bad day. To the extent that kind of affects us, I think it's really important to understand about ourselves the actual causes and effects of our actions, especially when they harm us. Because if we understand that like, okay, well, the reason I was so rude to this person is because I only slept two hours last night. Then a day later when someone's really rude to us, we don't think that person is the worst person I've ever met in my life and I hope they fall off a bridge and die. We think like, man, they need to get more sleep. And then it's not much of a step further from there to like, man, this person needs help. I wonder if I can help them. Once you understand yourself a bit more, it becomes so much easier to help other people because you're like, okay, well, I know that for me, often all I need to feel a lot better is for someone to listen to me. You know, I'm having this really hard day. I wish I could just tell someone all about it. And when someone sits with you and does that for you, you're like, wow, that helped a lot. And if you are aware enough to notice that that helps you in the moment, then someone else is having a really hard day near you. And you're like, I'm just going to sit with them and let them tell me about their hard day. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of just say back to them rather than trying to give them unsolicited advice, rather than trying to fix their problem. I'm just going to say, man, that sounds really hard. I'm sorry. They will feel better. And you know that you're a human too. And if you start to understand what about you works, you can start doing that for other people too. And I think that that's like the highest, one of the highest kinds of good we can strive towards. What you're talking about is I just experienced. I just, I couldn't put it into words. I wouldn't say I had horrible road rage, but you know, I, I was like, oh man, who's this guy I think he is? You know, if he cuts me off or a couple of weeks ago, my daughter is extremely allergic to peanuts and she had a peanut. And so we were freaking out. And so we hopped in the car. We were obviously driving fast to get her the help that she needs. Remove that context. And then, you know, I'm cutting people, I'm speeding, you know, I'm, I'm breaking, I'm riding people, you know, cause, cause I need to get my daughter to the hospital. But you know, if people understood the context, then, then I'm sure if everyone knew they're like, holy crap, you know, why it's daughter, you know, and they just all get out of the way. But now that has affected me so much. Cause now anytime anyone does something to me on the road, 
I instantly, you know, I'm like, you know what? What if they're going through the same thing? What if their daughter's life is on the line? You know, I'm, I'm just going to take it easy. I'm just going to, you know, you keep cutting people off, man. That's fine. You, you, you need, you got to get somewhere. Apparently it's funny that you would mention road rage because that's actually something that as little as a year ago, I really struggled with. You know, and, and sort of my mindset would be driving. And I'm like, I really want to get to where I need to go, regardless of whether I was early, you know, and whether it mattered, like I really need to get to this place 30 minutes early so I can sit mm-hmm. in the car and listen to a song again, you know? And like, I think, first of all, as a more sort of practical note on that, I think we grossly overestimate how much driving a little, driving even like 15 miles per hour faster will actually save you on time. We're talking about like 30 seconds here, you know, just give yourself more time to get there. So I went through a couple different phases with it. I had one phase with driving where I was like, like kind of what you were talking about, where it's like someone would cut me off and I'd be like, that person is the worst. You know, I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to race them. I'm going to speed up. I'm going to get in front of them. Stuff like that. Like I was really bad. Stuff that's dangerous and, you know, illegal. I would do because I was so mad. So then I went through this, the second phase of like realizing, okay, that's, that's a huge problem. And I would have this point where I would still have those thoughts, but I would just be like, no, I can't do it. And I would just build up this tension in on myself. And I would see someone, I would still think that they were a jerk, but I would, instead of cutting them off, I would just like kind of tense up and just like try my hardest to continue doing what I was doing to act as if I hadn't experienced that. And then the phase that I'm in now is when I'm driving, I try to figure out There's an idea I've been toying with a little bit recently, and I promise this is related. The idea is that the highest form of morality, you know, the highest good that towards which I can strive is to help as many people as possible without anything I do being at the expense of even one of them. If I can achieve that, that's the best possible action I can take in a given moment. I try to drive... I mean, this sounds very silly in a way, but I try to drive with that in mind. You know, like, how could I drive so that I could help as many people as possible without being at the expense of even one of them. And that includes me, you know, without being at my expense either. So what I do is I drive as fast as is legal because that's not at the expense of the rules that everyone has agreed to. And I drive in, I don't ever tailgate anybody because that would be at their expense. And if someone is speeding up behind me, I get out of their way because, you know, for me to be in their way would be at their expense, you know, and stuff like that, where it's like, for me, shifting sort of the framework from like, how can I get what I want to like, what is the greatest good that even this banal menial thing can do for the world? It's a really potent anti-anxiety remedy in a weird way. So even strictly selfishly speaking, that is a great way to not experience the degree of anxiety I felt when I was just like trying to be normal. It was like, I have a task now. I have a goal now. And I think for me, a lot of really small, stupid stuff, frankly, I think of in terms of like the highest possible morality in a way that I imagine a lot of people don't or wouldn't want to. Like that's not to say that that's the right way to do it, but it it works for me. And so with something as simple as like eating, you know, like I hesitate to use this word, but I am vegan. So it's like for me, it's it's I, I don't expect other people to be vegan and I don't criticize other people for being vegan. But the reason I am is because it's like, okay, well, how can I benefit as many people as, as possible? And I include sort of other living creatures in that and not at the expense of even one of them. So it's like, okay, well, is it at my expense? And I did the research and I was like, well, there's no real verifiable health problems, you know, that are associated with veganism done right. So it was like, okay, well, if that's the highest good that I can do, then that's just how I'll do it. Kind of circling back to, you know, the the concept of you being in therapy for someone listening to this, maybe, maybe they're on the, they think they need therapy, but they're kind of going back. Ah, maybe I don't, maybe I do, you know, kind of a thing for, for keeping like that person in mind, you know, what has been the deal breaker for you? You're like, 
I received this advice and this advice alone was worth going to therapy. You know, like, I guess in essence is like, what has been the most beneficial thing that you've learned from therapy that has just increased your quality of life? Well, I still have, a, I still have a lot of the negative patterns that I kind of came to therapy with. The difference is that I would sort of explain in most literal terms possible to my therapist, what is what I'm thinking, what I did, you know, what I think was wrong about it. And then be basically be like, that's what happened. And most of the time, what she would say is like, oh, that sounds like poor time management or like, oh, well, have you established a boundary with this person? Like, it sounds like this person doesn't understand what you want. Whereas for me before that, I would think, oh, I'm a bad person. You know, that would be the first place I would go is like, oh, I have I've caused another person stress or harm or even, you know, small things like, oh, we had plans to get coffee and then I canceled at the last minute. You know, I would feel like, oh, this is evidence that I am a bad person because I do these things. And what I found out is that a lot of this stuff that I would consider to be characteristics of a bad person was actually like, oh, that's just poor time management. You know, oh, just get a calendar. Oh, be more realistic about committing to things with people. Only make plans that like you're sure you're going to be able to keep and then you won't have to bail out on plans. You know, if you don't think you're going to be able to do something, just tell them, you know, and something as simple as that, again, like it's all this really simple stuff, stuff like breathing, stuff like eating enough, stuff like getting enough sleep or keeping a calendar that enables me to set myself up to be a good person, you know, whenever the opportunity arises. And then when I kind of go back later and I'm like, what can I be mad at myself about? You know, there's not a lot of ammunition because I've set myself up so well to do all the things that are in alignment with my goals and ambitions as a person. I'll give one simple example again. Um, so with music, it used to be that I would kind of be like, oh, I'm going to work on music when I'm not at work. I would think, okay, well, I, I would get home from work and I would be really tired and I wouldn't want to work on music. But I would think, oh, I should be working on music. That would be what a, what a hardworking person would do is they would be working on it. Then I would be too tired to work on music, but too self-critical to actually relax. So I wouldn't accomplish either of those things. And something that my therapist had me do, she was like, give yourself four hours in the morning to work on music. And then after that, you're done. And it's like, I, in my head, I'm like, oh, the, all these things I need to do take way more than four hours. And then I did this like once or twice and I knocked out almost every single one of my projects in two sessions. All these things that I had been sitting on for months and months and months. And then after I was done with that, I was actually free to just like hang out and have a normal life. And it was, it got my work done. It got me so that I could relax more and it allowed me to, you know, look again, look at what I'm doing, see if my actions align with my intentions. And when they do, it feels really good. Kind of the overarching concept that I got from that is that your therapist really helped you recognize the inner voice, the internal dialogue that you have and how powerful that internal dialogue really is. Because the same thing happened to me. My internal dialogue, like most people's, most people, most people, most persons, most any of those is actually technically correct. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> like many individuals, they have a very bad internal dialogue. I should be doing this. And if I don't do this, then I am X, Y, Z. Or I am a terrible person for this reason. Therefore, I need to be critical of myself to fix that reason, which it's, it's a horrible way of doing it. It's, it's not effective. It's so detrimental to your, to your mental health, to your emotional health, to your physical health. It's, it's just horrible. So is that, is that what you're saying? Is that like, is that she really helped you hone in on that internal dialogue and how to make it more beneficial? Yeah. Well, that, that's, I, that's a huge part of it. I think you, you hit like definitely the core of it and, and sort of the, the side effect of that is like, once you realize that what you're telling yourself is always the same, 
then you realize, well, it can't always be true. It can't be true that every single thing that I do is evidence that I'm a bad person. So it must be false at least sometimes. And then it's not too far of a step to be like, well, it's at least an oversimplification. What even is a bad person? And then you can start to realize, well, okay, well, these are actually very simple problems. Something as simple as like, if you had put this on your calendar, you wouldn't have had this problem. If you had allocated yourself time to work on this, you wouldn't have had this problem. Mm-hmm. And so like this stuff that often like in myself and in other people looks like laziness or flakiness or you know selfishness is often just something as simple as poor time management. And so that internal voice, like you said, it's like there's, you start to realize how much it's not, not only not serving you, but just not accurate. It doesn't have any real positive bearing on your interaction with the world. Something came to my mind really quick. And so, you know, a lot of people's reason as to why they don't want to go to therapy is maybe it's inconvenient, maybe it's too expensive, maybe they don't know the first steps and so on and so forth. So really quick for those listening, uh, including yourself, Alden, if you feel like this is, uh, it sounds like you got a good therapist, but just in case, you know, in the future, there's this really amazing app. It's called Regain. I thought it was really interesting because it popped up as like online relationship counseling. Like, ooh, that sounds, I never have enough for relationship counseling. Let's check this out. And so I checked it out, but it's actually, it's not just for couples. It's for anyone everywhere all the time. But basically it's $40 a month, which is way cheaper than normal therapy. It's all online. You can call them, you can set up face calls. You can message them all the time and they, they reply like three times a day or something like that. And so it's actually really really, 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 really good. And so I'd highly encourage anyone, if if you want to take the first baby steps into counseling, Regain is incredible. And then obviously, you know, like if you want to get more specialized or if you, if you want the face-to-face, you know, that's fine too. Some people are just like that. I just want to clarify for a moment because I did just see you have to go look that up. It's not like he's, he's not reading from a script. This isn't like a sponsored, this isn't like a promotion. This is like a legitimate recommendation. And, and it's not a product that I've used, so I can't vouch for it, but I just wanted to clarify that point because I don't want people to be like, you sold out. Thank you for pointing that out. No, I am not endorsed by, I don't even know if the company is called Regain or just the app is, I don't even know. But I actually had to go into the kitchen and ask my wife what it was called. And so personal use, it's freaking awesome. Thank you for clarifying that, Alden. I've seen people go down that rabbit hole before. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, I got one final question for you and then I got to split because I, I got to go eat dinner with my wife. How do you feel about Christmas? Gosh, it's an interesting one. I used to be very cynical about it. I read an article on it that actually really turned me around on the topic. It was basically saying that the origins of Christmas is that back in the day, before we had stuff like shelter and heating, central heating, it would be that you know, if you had a grandma in November, you wouldn't necessarily still have a grandma in April. Like the cold months would take people from you, would destroy your crops, would destroy your family and like tear you apart and you would get sick and people didn't often recover from sickness back then. So like winter sucked back then. And so Christmas sort of thematically is about taking the worst time of the year for humans and like literally we put lights on it and we say, okay, this is the brightest time of the year. This is the time of year that we are like closest together and we come together and we acknowledge how important our connections are because they might not be here next year. You know, this might be my last Christmas with this person. So it's important for me to acknowledge it. I used to be very cynical about it. And now I'm less so because I see it as this, you know, it's an opportunity to consider like, okay, how important are these connections in my life? It's an opportunity to consider like, okay, well, I mean, if we didn't have Christmas, this would just be like cold, you know, just, we'd be so cold. And that would be all anyone was talking about. But instead we're talking about like, oh, well, what can I get for this person to show them how much I appreciate them? And what can I do for this person? And I just think that it's kind of a beautiful thing conceptually. 
let's say that it was the Christmas season and you were going through an extremely depressive time or highly anxious time, you know, just a rough time in general. And someone was to help you in some fashion or another. Someone was to to reach out to you, do something for you. That meant a lot to you. What would that look like for you? You know, would that be them taking you out to dinner, talking with you, seeing how you're doing? Would it be them getting you a gift? Would it be them giving you some advice? You know, like, what would that look like for you? Like in a perfect world, it would probably have something to, it would probably just be a very thoughtful gesture. Whether that's a gift that like is actually solving a problem that I have, you know, like whether it's something that like really clearly like they thought about it and they were like, you know, Alden really struggles with this. It would be awesome if I could get him this. That would be the ideal thing is a gift that covers something that I wouldn't even maybe think was a problem that could be solved. Even just independent, because obviously not everyone can afford to do that, but just a really nice gesture. Like someone doing something for me that's like really nice. It just takes some weight off my shoulders. So my follow-up question to that is, how can you be that person for someone this holiday season. How can you be that person, Alden? It's kind of a bummer. My roommates just got home. And so I can't, I have a little surprise, but I can't say it because they'll hear me. But there is something, I'll just, I'll suffice it to say, there is something that someone in this house very much wants and has wanted for a long time that I intend to work with someone else who lives in this house to get for them. That's that's awesome. There's been a long awaited thing that we are getting for a certain individual. This has been a fantastic interview. I've really, really enjoyed it. Any final words on your part? Yeah, I mean, it would be awesome if, I mean, obviously this hasn't been super the point of this conversation, but I would love for people to kind of check out my music and tell me what you actually think of it. And and I really do encourage people to, to kind of dive into this stuff that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily dive into, like the lyrics or like the production, if you are normally a lyrics person. Like, I would encourage people to maybe dive into that and I do love feedback I mean I know we kind of talked earlier about how sometimes it's not always useful but like especially if you like what I'm doing not just for me but if you like what a creator is doing like if you like any musician tell them right now tweet at them like right this very moment and be like hey whoever it is I really like your work because people who don't like stuff are so much more motivated to tell people that they don't like it than people who like stuff are so like just make that effort to connect with your favorite creator whether it's me or AU5 or Laura Bram or any of these other amazing musicians out there just tell them today that they're amazing and that and how their music has impacted your life because it might be the difference between them having a bad day and having a good day and that might be the difference between them continuing to make music and them continuing to not make music i just want to give a huge thanks to evoke for coming on do you have a good time absolutely awesome dude love to have you back on sometime i'd be into that
Surrender.